Hello, and welcome back to the Rehumanize podcast. Herb is here again. That is me with Emiliano. Yet again, we are we're consistent. We didn't make a promise last time, and then just abandon the idea. I'm, proud I'm of back. <laughs> welcome back. Yes. So how have uh, you been? We. La, la, la. I have been great. It's about the end of the school year, and I'm realizing that I could not work as anything other than an academic because I cannot handle working for the year round. That's a lie. I do like activism stuff year round that like should be considered a, a, another full time job. But yeah, world beyond war. Yeah, yeah. So our guest today is Greta Zaro. She works with World Beyond War. If you're if you've been involved with Rehumanize, you probably know Greta. She's been at the past couple Rehumanize conferences. Um, we've worked with her on a couple other projects. Uh, she's great. World Beyond War is great. Rehumanize is actually a member group of World Beyond War, so we partner with them a bunch, and I'm always happy to work with them. So I'm excited to hear from Greta and get her get her take about you know war generally current issues going on and to tell us a little bit about her conference that is coming up this June. Welcome back everybody. Now we have Greta from World at War. No. World beyond war. The world shouldn't be at war. Oh my gosh. Sorry. I let you lead one time. This is my first time. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome back. We've got Greta from World Beyond War. And we're very excited for this discussion today. Greta, you want to say hi? Yes, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Great, Greta. Can you tell us a little bit about what World Beyond War does? What What is it? I know that um, a lot of our listeners probably are already familiar just because Rehumanize has been involved for a while. Um, we are a member group, so... Yeah, tell us a little bit about what um, what you guys do. Yes, World Beyond War was founded in 2014, and our mission is to abolish the institution of war. We look at war holistically and all of its multifaceted impacts from, of course, the human and social impacts, but also the economic impacts, the environmental impacts, etc., um, even down to you know different cross-sectional issues, for example, the way that war promotes uh, racism and bigotry. Um, and so we really, our mission is this really holistic look at these intersectional impacts of the war machine uh, with a focus on abolishing the institution of it. And we are opposed to all forms of war, all types of weapons, all forms of violence. And we felt that there was a need for an organization to kind of come up and take this intersectional lens and try to kind of bring together multifaceted groups under this unified mission of war abolition. That's a really interesting phrase that I don't think I've ever heard before. What do you mean by the institution of war? Yeah, so the institution of war is this multi-trillion dollar institution, right? The world spends $2 trillion a year on war and preparations for war. Um, it is governments and businesses working together hand in hand 
to promote the war machine for corporate profit, for selling weapons around the world. So it's very much a pre-planned thing. Um, we're not talking about conflict, right? Conflict always exists. Humans will always have conflict. Um, but we're talking about an institution that is funded by our governments. Um, so that's really this, this larger look uh, at the war machine. Okay, so why is an anti-war movement needed? Especially, I, I know that might sound like a little cliche, nobody's supposed to like war, but I think especially right now when there's not a lot of obvious wars, um, especially that the United States necessarily is participating in, um, even though we are still obviously involved in like nine wars at a time always. Um, what does an anti war movement look like now? Yeah, as I said, I think we felt this need for an anti-war movement to come up again under this umbrella of war abolition because we felt that there was a lot of initiatives that were sort of tackling one particular weapon, for example, nuclear weapons, or one particular war, for example, the Iraq war, right? There was this huge movement against the Iraq war. But then, you know, after that wasn't really in the news anymore, the movement sort of fell away. And we felt that there was this uh, lack of a sustained anti-war movement. And I think that the issue of war is in many ways very taboo. Um, it's something that people don't like talking about. As you're saying, it's not necessarily visible to many of us, even though we really are complicit in it. You know, 50% of our tax dollars in the U.S. are propping up the war machine. Um, and just all of these other sort of hidden ways that war impacts our lives and, you know, everything down to the lack of health care and the lack of a good education system in this country or the lack of clean water, all of these things are related to the fact that we are spending priorities are completely uh, misdirected, right? Um, and all of our, our tax money is being spent on these wars abroad. Um, so really, to answer your question, an anti-war movement is needed to tie these threads together, to weave these intersections and show that war is kind of at the nexus of all of these other issues. And we need to tackle the issue of war if we're going to solve these other issues. A question I have for you, sort of Emiliano touched on this, but there is this idea that I've encountered where when I speak to people, when I'm trying to to have my activist hat on and convince people to be anti-war, to get motivated on this issue, I encounter almost everyone um, who would say I'm anti-war. I'm, I'm against war. I don't support wars. Um, but in practice, you know, we're all, if you're voting in the United States at the federal level, you're voting for candidates who are funding war at the very least when it comes to the budget, um, if not outright supporting more foreign interventionism. Um, and so I just want to want to get your read on that. How do we sort of navigate being opposed to war, as I think most people are, at least those who don't directly benefit from it, which is a very small population of people in the United States. Um, but how do we put that into practice, aside from just maybe making an Instagram post that we, we stand with whatever country we're bombing at the moment? 
Yeah, that's such a great question. And that's kind of the second piece of our work is the, the action component, right? So the first piece is education. Those are the two pillars of our work. Um, education, debunking the myths of war, kind of, you know, everything that we're talking about right now, exposing the war machine. But then that second piece is so crucial as well of then, you know, putting that knowledge into practice. Um, and the two main campaigns that we focus on are closing military bases and divesting. Um, we do a lot of other campaigns beyond that, but those are the two main ones that we're focusing on, um, which we see as uh, critical steps to dismantling the war machine to kind of, number one, uh, withdraw the infrastructure, these military bases that are literally physically propping up war around the world and acknowledging that the U.S. has 96% of all foreign military bases around the world, which are these sites of imperialism um, and literally pre-positioning troops and weapons in preparation for wars um, and divestment. Also, we see that as another kind of crucial step uh, to withdraw the money that is propping up war and, again, making all of these connections visible. And I think divestment especially perhaps gets at what you're asking because Again, if war can feel far off, um, it makes it much more tangible because we're looking on the personal level. What banks are you banking with? You know, where are your uh, retirement funds invested or where is your employer investing your money? Um, where, you know, if you're part of a place of worship, where are they investing their money or your university? Um, you know, kind of scaling it up from there, uh, city level pension funds, um, state level pension funds, etc. And so that really in kind of brings it home when we see that uh, the institutions that we work with and our municipalities and our counties and our states uh, are propping up war in that way. And so that's a very tangible way that you can take action. Yeah, I know that. In my experience, I live in, in Pittsburgh, and this is where the headquarters of PNC Bank is located. And we have a movement here that I've been involved in somewhat to get them to divest just from nuclear weapons, which I think is it, it is fascinating that that even has to be a movement, um, because I know almost everyone I know, because we live in Pittsburgh, um, we bank in some way with PNC, and it's very hard not to, you know, to, to join some other... Um, you know, maybe smaller, uh, like a credit union or something like that, um, is you really have to go out of your way to avoid supporting war in some way, um, which I think makes it very complicated for people because I think with with some other issues, you tend to you tend to be able to say, oh, well, if I don't participate in that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm vegan and I. I get to live that out by just not buying meat and eating meat. Um, but with war, I kind of can't do that. You know, I need to go to, I, I need to live in a building where my landlord, um, my landlord company might be investing in the war machine in some way. And I need to, if I, if I'm a teacher, my pension fund is invested in the war machine. And I think it gets very hard to, to disentangle. And so when I'm looking at the idea of divestment generally, it sounds great, but how practically do you start that movement wherever you live? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. Um, I don't think we can truly ever be fully divested from the war machine. I think, you know, what you're saying is, is true. And, um, 
we can't beat ourselves up for that. You know, we have to yeah, do yeah, the yeah. best that we can do in and scale it up as we can. And that's part of the divestment movement too, is to stigmatize the war machine by revealing these interconnections and then, you know, slowly kind of scaling it one city at a time. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's, you just have to start small. And, you know, we divested Charlottesville, Virginia from fossil fuels and weapons. And that was a great success. And we've been able to kind of share that success and inspire other cities to do the same. And, and we just have to keep going like that. But yeah, we might never be fully divested if you start looking at every single product that you're buying or every interconnection. Um, but I think also what you're getting at reminds me of something that I call my two-prong approach, uh, which is that, number one, what we're talking about, which is what I call like policy advocacy work. We're talking about you know changing legislation, for example, uh, on the city level. But then the second prong that I think is so important, which you sort of brought up with the vegan example, is looking at our own lives, too, um, and kind of building the alternative world that we want to see within our own lives. Um, you know, for example, I'm also I live a plant-based diet, um, and I have a farm, and we try to you know be self-sufficient as much as possible and reduce our consumption of resources. So I think that's that's a really crucial second step is kind of looking at the community level and like personal lifestyle level as well. At the same time that we're advocating for these more systemic changes, I think it's really. Interesting um, to connect those two points of uh, like veganism and and uh, kind of conscious consumption of uh, I mean really a lot of like the water and agricultural products that you use because I mean so many of the wars that are happening right now are at least partially over water natural resources grazing lands I think that was a uh, an interesting point that I hadn't thought of before. Definitely. We see so many wars in places with fossil fuels, right? That's the obvious connection. And the war machine itself is this huge consumer of fossil fuels. The U.S. military is the largest institutional consumer of oil on the planet, which is just crazy to wrap your head around. So it is really all interconnected, which you know also speaks to the need to build these intersections. Um, you know, the environmental movement is so strong right now, um, but not is not necessarily making the connections that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I do think that is so important to, because unfortunately war is so embedded in American life and, and Western life generally in terms of, you know, committing these wars. Uh, it, it that leads to a lot of room to work with other movements. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, um, war drives racism. This past summer, there was obviously a huge anti-racist uprising in the in the form of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I think that that is just one area um, similar to environmentalism that you know war war is connected to this because it is so connected to to everything because essentially we live in a war economy it just might not feel that way yeah and this is bringing me back to one of the strategies of world beyond wars alternative global security system the agss which is kind of the the blueprint of our book that was the first thing we put out in 2014 and it lays out these three strategies of how we can get to a world beyond war number one is to demilitarize security 
Number two is to manage conflict nonviolently. But then the third strategy is what you're getting at here now, which is to create a culture of peace. And all three of those strategies are so necessary simultaneously. Um, and so we do a lot of educational events and cultural events like film screenings, um, things like that to just kind of get start a new narrative right um and we have something called the peace almanac uh, which is a calendar uh there's an entry every single day um and it's part of telling this new narrative so it highlights different moments in the peace movement whether it's success stories or even setbacks or, or various milestones um and so it's trying to kind of create this culture of peace and get us away from celebrating militaristic holidays like veterans day um um, so, yeah, all of these things are, are so important, especially, as you said, in the U.S., where militarism is so embedded in our culture. And, um, you know, it's seen as as being a hero um, and the, the, the use of the word service uh, to talk about being in the military instead of really looking at, at these negative impacts. I think that's something that's really, really important. I'm a teacher and uh, uh, like there's the military recruiter, you know, posted up in the in the high school just you know basically just waiting to snap up like young poor kids who want to go to college and don't have a way to pay for it um and that's another way that the war economy is and american imperialism in general is just completely dependent on the impoverishment of the majority of the population because that's where the majority of new recruits into the u.s army are from are poor kids who either want to go to college or went to college and have debt or need to get out of a bad family situation. I'm glad that you brought it up first, um, but do we have uh, uh, good stats on where the fingers should be pointed in terms of, you know, who is the most responsible for military spending and harm that comes from the military industrial complex globally? Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's the U.S. <laughs> the U.S. government is the biggest culprit. Um, and, you know, I should say World Beyond War is a global organization. We have people in 190 countries worldwide that have signed our Declaration of Peace. And that was part of, you know, telling going back to the first question of telling our origin story. Um, that was part of it, too, as we felt that there was this need for a global organization um, that not one country alone could end something as large as the institution of war, but that we really needed to to work together. Um, but at the same time, we also recognize that the U.S. military is the biggest culprit in this story, that we spend 50% of all military spending. So that's around $1 trillion a year is just from the U.S. And all other countries combined is another $1 trillion a year. Um, and as I said earlier, with the military bases, you know, often, right, the mainstream media likes to paint Russia and China as these enemies. But the U.S. has 96% of all foreign military bases, which is about 800 bases around the world. So when we just look at all these different stats, we can see that the U.S. is really the warmonger here. And so it's this balance for us where we are attempting to create this global movement because we need to unify all of our voices together to show these multifaceted impacts. But at the same time, we have to recognize that the U.S. is the biggest culprit. So a lot of our materials you'll see on our website, worldbeyondwar.org, 
a lot of our materials are geared towards um, exposing the U.S.'s impact and also allowing people from other countries to share their stories of how the U.S. has, you know, bombed or polluted uh, you know, their country as well. Um, so it's, you know, it's not just U.S. citizens uh, protesting the U.S. government, but also global citizens coming together to protest the U.S. government's role in this. Another thing I I find a lot when I try to engage people on this issue, um, and really these issues, because war isn't really just one thing, it's a combination of many things and many structures all working together to commit different forms of, of violence um, and control. But I, I find that idea, again, of being opposed to war generally, but then when we look at individual wars, perhaps, or individual um, military involvement um, or con- in conflicts, uh, people tend to think that, oh, well, that one is the exception, you know. That was very popular um, when it came to the invasion of Iraq, that we that we had to do something um, because, you know, Saddam was a butcher, et cetera. Um, we were like, we're talking- what, like eight or nine or 10 that's been seared into our memories, just like the, yeah. the like imperialist talking points for the war in Iraq. Like, yeah. I mean, in the same, in the same way that that happens now with, you know, Venezuela it, it, and, you know, various countries in Latin America that, that idea, and this, this also was, was more popular back in the day, but that, that idea of the U S being the world police. Um, and I think in addition, the UN and NATO sort of serving those functions um and how i guess the answer is through your educational efforts but how do you think that you know other activists can help break through that sort of idea that that this is the good war this is this this one will be quick it'll be over with and we're going to liberate the people um instead of just causing more and more harm towards their communities Yeah, that is definitely a barrier or a talking point that comes up a lot that the mainstream media is pushing. And and as you're saying, kind of the demonization of different countries and, you know, but this one is necessary. um, And that is a huge part of our our materials and our online courses and our books and our fact sheets is to debunk uh, this myth of of wars being just or necessary or inevitable or beneficial. Um, And yeah, just through exposure all of the multifaceted impacts that we've already kind of touched on, you know, even if uh, people are not compelled by the human impact, which I hope they would be, you know, by by the civilian casualties, uh, which are so high, much, much higher than military casualties. And, you know, the numbers have flipped in the past century. It used to be civilian casualties was a smaller proportion, but now the large proportion of, of victims of war are civilians. Um but if people are not compelled by that, you know, t- then kind of expanding the argument out to the other things that we've talked about in terms of the economic impact and the environmental impact. Um, and, you know, I think also talking about the power of nonviolence is another aspect of this conversation. And we often quote um, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, who are these two researchers who looked at 100 years of data and saw that nonviolent resistance was actually twice as successful as violent resistance in terms of civil resistance campaigns. Um, So that's a statistic that we like to cite a lot. Uh, And one of our board members, John Ruhr, 
went to South Sudan last year uh, with Nonviolent Peace Force, which is another organization that promotes the efficacy of nonviolence. Um, and they do unarmed, uh, you know, civilian peacekeeping. Um, and they can, you know, they've been doing this for decades and showing that, you know, going into a conflict zone unarmed is actually more beneficial. They've been able to um, you know, reduce tensions, diffuse a, a situation, Um without arms. Um, and so I think that's another key piece of this is talking about the efficacy of nonviolence. Um, and then an- another piece I would add too is just raising up the voices of victims too, um, through our articles on our website, through our webinars, through our conferences, um, you know, allowing people to hear directly from folks in Venezuela, in Yemen, you know, in uh, Yugoslavia, around the world, and hearing their personal stories, uh, you know, saying, no, (laughs) that that war did not uh, liberate me or help me, you know, my family uh, was killed or whatever, and and really sharing that personal direct story uh, to debunk these myths. Yeah, I think think that, that, that idea is something that I, I always feel a lot of tension in because I think that when when we talk about this idea of um, war being potentially liberating or an invasion being done for the benefit of those who we are killing, um, I, I feel very uncomfortable trying to walk that line of, well, I don't want to say, you know, Saddam Hussein is, is an easy example, but, you know, he's a good guy. He should be in charge, you know. Um, but I also don't want to just be, you know, repeating state department propaganda, um, about what any, uh, world leader is doing. Um, and I think that it's something that for me and for a lot of people who I've spoken to, uh, they get sort of uncomfortable when we have to, to talk about this. And so I think that your, your leadership and world beyond wars leadership, um, in terms of, you know, nonviolent resistance, because sometimes things need to be resisted, you know, Um, but it does not necessarily mean that we need to be bombing hospitals and bombing schools in order to, you know, create a more just circumstance for people in X country. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at too is, you know, the the need to think in a nuanced way, um, and that seems obvious, I guess, to us in this conversation. But I do feel that people often think in black and white ways, as you were saying, either you're, you know, you're for Saddam Hussein or or you're against him or something, and, and not this uh, middle ground that you're trying to to show here. Um, and so I do feel like that's a that's a large part of our work too, is to show a more nuanced pathway for a lot of these, you know, complex situations, and you know. A huge credit, of course, goes to our executive director, David Swanson, who is just a master at kind of debunking all of these war lies. And he's written so many books um, on different topics, uh, including one that is just focused on World War II uh, and debunking all of the myths of that. And then we ran an online course based on that. Nuanced and also really, I think, courageously nonpartisan, um, because I I think... uh, I don't know. Uh, We've talked about this before, how maybe uh, because we are generally running in pro-life circles that we'll have more of a a conservative or Republican leaning listenership. But like and there's the kind of, I guess, like perception for whatever reason of, you know, God, I feel like this whole podcast is just like a, a reflection of all of the 
propaganda that we received as children. Uh, I'm just like literally remembering like the Bush ads against uh, John Kerry for being like a namby pamby like peacenik or something like that. When in reality, the theory of humanitarian liberal interventionism is very much alive in the Democratic Party as well. And we had a strange kind of reversal in 2016. Trump ran on a more isolationist platform than than Hillary did. So I, I think that that nonpartisanship of uh, World Beyond War is a really important part of it as well, because not everybody is... Uh, I mean, both political parties in the United States are very content upholding war and American empire. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, that's really important to us. I mean, of course, as a 501c3, we can't take a position in elections anyway, but we wouldn't want to. Um, that is, that's, you know, that's what we're, we're trying to do is to use war as kind of going back to the very beginning as this nexus that brings people together, this cross-sectional issue. And we do have people on our email list from all across across the, the political spectrum. And, and this is the issue that kind of ties us together. So I think that's so crucial uh, as well. I'm really glad that you flagged that. Um, and speaking about kind of the how both Democrats and Republicans uh, push war, you know, you might be following that right now, uh, the U.S. government is trying to expand the draft, the military draft registration to include women in kind of this you know, sense of, oh, it's more equal if we include women, even though, you know, our, our argument I is... I love woke war modeling. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's like uh, pinkwashing. <laughs> exactly. The, oh, we allow trans people in the military now. Yay. Yeah, yeah. Now the military is good. Now the, now the trans, military is good because tra- trans people can... Trans people, people. Can, can participate. Then it's fine. Right, right. So this is the the crazy argument that we're hearing right now. And we're seeing the U.S. government trying to push this through. And, and we're making the argument to abolish the draft. No one should be drafted. Um, so I encourage you to look at our new TikTok channel. If you haven't, we just launched a, a video talking about the draft. Great. What is what is the TikTok handle? Oh, I think it's just at World Beyond War, but I haven't I don't have it handy right now. I'll find it. I have a TikTok account, but I feel too old to sufficiently understand it. And I just scroll on it for hours. As a high school teacher, I'm like, I, I cannot, I cannot <laughs> handle like just being on a social media site. That's just people who are basically the same age as my students. It's weird. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about these myths that, uh, that we've mentioned a couple times. I think World Beyond War frames it as four myths uh, that prop up wars. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about them in detail? Yeah, so the four myths are that war is never just, war is never beneficial, war is never necessary, and war is not inevitable. Um, so, you know, each of those in turn are, can be quite lengthy arguments, and you can go on our website to see, you know, different articles and fact sheets and resources to back it up. Um but you know, I'll say to the point of war is not inevitable because that is maybe one of the first myths that we have to confront. Um, we talk about how war has not always existed in human history; that it's a relatively new uh, invention, as again as this pre-planned institution. Not the notion of conflict; conflict has always existed, but war as an institution. Um, we talk about how I believe it's like 
only in the last 8,000 years or so. Um, so it's not this predetermined thing. And it's really uh, a social convention. It's become a social norm. Uh, and we talk about how, you know, we've abolished other things, uh, other social norms or conventions over the years, like slavery or uh, other examples such as that. And um, or dueling is another example we use, um, things that, you know, are, are now seen to be completely old fashioned or ridiculous or, um, and so the same way we can change the narrative about war. And so I think that myth maybe about the inevitability is the most important one to tackle because so many people just feel that it's just a part of our human nature, that it, it has to exist. Um, and, and so if we live with that, if we live with that notion, then, you know, we can't break through. And so it's really sort of changing that narrative and inspiring people that, no, th this is a human invention. And so we can uh, dismantle it. Um, yeah, um, I, I think that's that's really one of the number one barriers. I, I think something that we've talked about today was how, oh, people think that war is bad, except for the one that we're currently in. So the one that we're currently, currently in at this moment <laughs> is the uh, conflict in Israel and Palestine. Um, I, I think even probably that's too generous of a phrasing, but we'll leave it at that right now. And the fact that the United States, under a democratic president with a uh, democratically controlled House and Senate, just approved, what, $700 billion plus more uh, on top of the regular $3 billion that we send to Israel in military aid and weapons. Can you talk a little bit more on what does it look like to be anti-war in the context of these specific wars that are currently ongoing? And what can we do as anti-war people? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for us, it's always a fine balance of how much to get involved in the war of the day. As I said at the beginning, you know, we felt that there was already many organizations who were attack uh, addressing various uh, current wars, but not really an organization that was tying it all together in this holistic way that we've been talking about. And so it's always a balance for us to you know, obviously need to respond to the many things that are happening in our society, um, but then to also use that as an example to then bring it back to the larger need for why we need to abolish the entire institution of war. Um, and so, so yeah, we, we try to use that as kind of a hook to then bring people in and tell this larger narrative. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the recent action we did last week. Uh, Rachel Small, our Canada organizer, made international head headlines, actually. Um, she did a direct action uh, along with other organizations, um, Independent Jewish Voices for Peace uh, in Canada. This was in Toronto at the Israeli consulate, and they spilled. Uh, some fake blood on the steps to show uh, representation, symbolic representation of the, the bloodshed that Israel, the government of Israel is uh, causing right now. Um, and to show solidarity with Palestine during this time. And we were amazed at that action has received so much press attention. Um, and it's really been, uh, you know, this, this great way to spark a conversation about what's happening uh, in Palestine. And again, the larger need to, to stop the war machine and to stop the arms sales from Canada to Israel and from the U.S. to Israel, etc. Um, so we've been involved in a number of different actions like that. Also, uh, related to the Saudi-led war in Yemen, 
We've done several direct actions. Uh, Rachel Small, again, our Canada organizer, has really been leading um, some direct actions in the Ontario, Canada area, um, blocking actually some trucks that were transporting weapons um, that would eventually make their way to Saudi Arabia, uh, as well as uh, blocking some trains that, again, were transporting weapons on their way to Saudi Arabia. Um, so we've done some of those direct actions in solidarity with allies um, to to talk about the flow of weapons and, again, to expose how, you know, even our, our countries that we feel, especially Canada, sort of is, is often whitewashed as this humanitarian uh, country, but how actually they are involved in, in all of these wars in the weapons industry. Yeah, I think this is a really, I'm happy we brought this up, the the idea of weapon sales and weapons manufacturing, um, because these, these two examples that we just brought up, both, um, you know, wars against and um, violence against Palestinians and those in Yemen, um, those are both examples when we look at the U.S. and Canada that there's pretty much no actual invasion um, coming from you know, our military, you know, there's not a lot of boots on the ground um, of our troops fighting in these wars, yet it is our government um, and the corporations in this country that are enabling those um, those conflicts to continue. Um, and I think that that idea of uh, the, where the weapons are coming from and the funding for the weapons is is crucial. Um, I know that is going to be addressed at the upcoming No War 2021 conference um, that I'm inviting you on this podcast partially just to plug because Rehumanize is a sponsor and I want as many people as possible to come to that because there is going to be a lot of really good information there. Um, but yeah, I want to I want to just talk about that a little bit. The uh, the impact that the the weapons dealing has globally. Yeah, this is a perfect segue to talk about the conference. Um, the conference theme is unraveling the war machine from weapons exposed to war zones. And initially, to kind of tell a little bit of the history of the, of the conference, um, initially it was supposed to be this in-person conference in Ottawa, Canada, uh, where CANSAC is held, which is North America's largest weapons expo. It happens every year. Most people don't know about it, but it's this huge thing that brings together tens, I think tens of thousands of people um, from like 55 different countries to and representatives of countries to come and purchase weapons. Um, and so originally the conference was supposed to shine a light on CANSAC, this weapons expo, and would include direct actions at the weapons expo site, which Canadians have been protesting for years, but we wanted to bring the, the World Beyond War International Conference there to shine an international light on it. Um, then of course, with the COVID pandemic, everything has changed. Um, and actually, CANSAC was canceled last year and this year, which is great. Um, and so yeah, I we, remember the original theme, if there was a hashtag, I remember using it, hashtag cancel CANSAC, and then it did get canceled. And I like <laughs> you did that. that. You did that. It was at least largely <laughs> as a result of our organizing, but um, it was probably largely due to the pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was largely due to the pandemic, but I do think we had a role in it too. And I remember when they made the announcement, I think, you know, March 2020, that it would be canceled. They did quote World Beyond War and mentioned that we had a petition that had over 7,000 signatures calling for the cancellation. So at least that got into the narrative. 
Um, but yeah, so it's switched to a virtual conference coming up June 4 through 6, and Rehumanize is one of the sponsors. Um, and we're using the Hop In platform, which was actually recommended by Rehumanize as well, which is this interactive uh, virtual conference platform that we thought would really help to mimic an in person experience. It has virtual expo booths, it has networking features, and then, of course, um, the panel presentations on the main stage, as well as different breakout sessions and discussion groups. Um, and so the theme really has expanded as we've gone virtual. It's obviously a lot more global. We have people from 25 different countries registered. We ha- can have a lot more diversity in the speakers and registrants um, now that we're virtual. And so we've kind of expanded it from CANSAC to looking at this this larger spectrum of the war machine. And so we have speakers kind of talking from all ends of the spectrum, um, talking about these weapons expos. Also, even before that, we have speakers talking about the mining of the minerals and the environmental impact and the social impact of the mining industry uh, that then goes into creating these weapons. And then we have you know the next stage of it talking about foreign policy and the need to shift from a militarized foreign policy perspective to a peace-based perspective um, and then kind of going you know unraveling from there we have people sharing you know, firsthand experience of bombs dropping in their communities so really looking at, at the whole spectrum of the war machine um, and we also have different workshops and trainings um, because we felt it was so important you know this issue can be uh, very large and heavy and depressing, right? Um, but we felt it was very important to highlight success stories as well. Um, and so we have people from Montenegro talking about shutting down a military base in their community. Um, we have people in New Zealand, Australia, and the UK talking about uh, shutting down weapons expos in their communities. Uh, we have people talking about successfully divesting their cities from weapons. So really sharing these positive examples as well and talking about how we can be effective. We can demilitarize our communities and hoping that people will come away with strategies and tactics that they can use in their communities. Yeah. What are the dates for the conference? June 4 through 6. So next week, Friday through Sunday. Great. I, for one, am super excited for the conference. And I really, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I I feel like I am very skeptical towards a lot of nonprofits, not as, a, you know, as I'm on a nonprofit podcast speaking with a nonprofit um, person, but like I- No, I mean, I get it. So, so am I. <laughs> I. I mean to say that a lot of organizations are very, very narrowly focused and won't um, touch on really difficult structural issues because at the end of the day, you rely on, you know, funders and, you know, you don't want, I don't know, whatever big bank that, you know, could cut you a check for a thousand dollars to not cut that check the next time. So I think it's really, really important the, the work that you're doing and that it's so unapologetic and so like very clearly connected to structural issues of economy of uh, national um, politics and international politics. And like I said before, just uh, nonpartisan and not scared to hold accountability wherever it might be coming from. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. That's that's what we're striving for. Exactly. And I think, you know, we're lucky that we're funded by just individual people who give, you know, five dollars a month. And so we're not beholden to corporations or governments that are influencing our, our policies. So we're lucky in that way. And we really do sort of consciously uh, try to frame ourselves and structure ourselves in that way so that we can be free to take these bold stances. Hear that, everybody? Give them money because they're not going to take it and go lick boots with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I definitely want to encourage all of the the listeners of the Rehumanize pod um, to get involved with World Beyond War and to at least, at the very least, go to the conference. I mean, if you were at the Rehumanize conference last year or any of our online events, we've had a couple, then you're already registered on Hop and you have an account. And that's like the biggest barrier to, to getting there, um, other than going on the World Beyond War website and getting your physical ticket, um, or I guess virtual ticket. But yeah, I mean, I can't wait for the conference. Um, I'm, I'm volunteered to be, I think, a, a Q&A moderator for a couple of the sessions. So I will definitely be there. You will see me, Rehumanize has a booth. You can come hang out with me and Sarah and Maria in the booth all weekend. Um, it's going to be a good time. I mean, I, I'm i sad it's not in person. This was, I think, the first plane ticket I had to cancel um, when the COVID <laughs> pandemic hit, which was super disappointing um, because I, was, I kept telling myself, um, well, it's really only going to be two weeks and... I'll be able to go to the the World Beyond War conference in June of 2020, um, and that did not happen. And so I'm really excited that it's been it's been made virtual and it's been expanded um, because I think that this just means that there is opportunity for even more people to hear the message. Yeah, thanks so much for your support. We appreciate Rehumanize's partnership and yeah, cross collaboration. We've participated in your conferences and you all participate in our conferences. So it's it's great to collaborate in this way. And yeah, we'll see what the future holds. We also, you know, did not realize obviously the scope of the pandemic and also thought, oh, we'll just postpone it a couple months, you know. So it's been a transformation, obviously, for the whole movement to shift to these virtual tactics. Um, and yeah, we're looking ahead to 2022 and not sure yet what that will look like, potentially a hybrid model of some in-person, some virtual, but it definitely has its benefits to uh, diversify and expand uh, the conference to a larger audience. Great. Thank you so much, Greta, for joining us. Is there anything else you want to plug before we kick you off the call? No, that's it. I guess the website is nowar2021.worldbeyondwar.org. Thanks. Thank you so much, Greta. It was great to meet you. excited about that interview it was a really really great conversation and i feel like i learned a lot and i'm still vibing off of uh, that there's only so much that you i think can glean from a website and like i seen the world beyond war speakers at the rehumanized conference um and i was really impressed uh in after we had stopped recording i was talking about how that was i think one of my favorite speakers uh, and one of the ones that challenged me the most and I grew the most from at the Rehumanized Conference. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's major. Another thing that we, 
I wish we talked about more when Greta was here, uh, was the the nonpartisan aspect of the the work that they do and the work that I think that you know the consistent life ethic movement and the the anti-war movement as a subsection of that uh, is necessary is the nonpartisan nature of it because I I find that um, most of these issues that we that we talk about um, especially especially war is that it is not it, it's not tied necessarily to um, economic beliefs or sort of uh, cultural beliefs um, as directly as maybe some other issues might be. Um, it's sort of it, it can be sort of removed from that and be a purely moral issue in certain respects, um, but can also be deeply tied to the cultural and economic issues because um, something that I, I, I see a lot when I talk about, and this comes up with all of the issues, um, especially the ones that involve taxpayer funding, which war is pretty much exclusively taxpayer funded. It's like the, um, the only thing that we have left that is, uh, you know, like uh, the only public good that we have left is war. Yeah. We, I mean, which isn't to say that the, the U.S. war machine has not been heavily privatized, um, you know, Blackwater's kicking um but what i think is so fascinating when i talk about this is that people with totally different economic theories um and how they how they approach the world can come to essentially the same position and then diverge from there and so when you talk about just you know military spending i feel like i'm able to talk to someone who their entire argument is I get taxed too much. I don't want to get taxed as much as I am. I'm I'm a libertarian type, um, and taxation theft. So we should stop funding the wars. And like that person comes to the same position as a democratic socialist who is saying we should be taxed more. There should be more taxes against the rich. Um, they should just be funding different things. And right now, all of the taxes that we do have are funding the military. This sucks. Uh, and so I think it's it's one of those things that really you can pull from all different segments of the population in the United States um, as long as you remember to come at it from a nonpartisan perspective um, because these are universal values and universal interests you know if if you are not a weapons manufacturer or a politician that's going to be funded by the weapons manufacturer lobbies uh, you don't really have a good incentive to have your taxes fund, you know, hospital bombings in X country. Um, and so I think that you literally don't, at yeah, all. you really, you, you really don't, you just have to this lose. Is actively, if you don't like taxes, like this is actively the, the thing that takes the most money out of your yeah. paycheck. Like, and if you, I mean, that's why we have, you know, Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Like, on the same side of this one issue. Yeah. I think this episode was was important because I think this really is the first time in depth that we've talked about war on this podcast. Um, and I think that this was a good, a good starter episode because it is such a broad topic to even introduce. Like the, the idea of war is very nebulous, especially in our lives. And we talked about this with Greta, but 
I feel like a lot of the issues of the consistent life ethic that we focus on are pretty, um, they can be pretty, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but, but distinct and small and you you can find a an actual bill somewhere that you support or you support this particular policy um you know if it's an abortion ban you support that if it's a repeal of the death penalty in a state you support that if it's you know a protection for disabled people you support that um all of those things can be pretty easy to support or oppose on an individual level but because of you know, the history of Western imperialism and U.S. imperialism and the way that we sort of go about propping up these these conflicts and these wars is such that it doesn't often come for a vote whether or not we're going to bomb a particular city or if we're going to um, hire a, a, you know, a drone operator um, from some contracting firm. Uh, and that can, I think, obscure the reality of what's going on because really what, what's happening is that constantly, every time Congress votes on a budget, we are fueling war and we're approving of war. Um, and even though it might not be reported on as that, there might be more sort of salacious things inside the budget or whatever other program, um, it, it can be sort of hidden. And so I think it becomes hard to, to talk about this and to find, you know, your target of what you actually oppose or what you support, um, unlike some of the other issues. And so I am grateful for World, Beyond's, World Beyond Wars work to look at it broadly so that we then can say, okay, here's how to target it specifically in the form of say divestment for example well and i hope that this podcast helps get the word out a little bit more because i think a good question that maybe we could have gone into more is why don't we hear about this and um she made a, a brief reference to you know like the mainstream media and i think the mainstream media that's a phrase that we use just kind of like generally like left and right and everywhere else like to just talk about the media when it doesn't talk about the things that we want it to talk about but for the same reasons that we were talking about now that uh corporations make money off of it that there is a bipartisan consensus on war the monopolization of media by corporations as well so i i think that having independent media sources like your local podcast uh discuss this is really important because otherwise no one else is going to talk about it like literally out of every dollar in taxes that you pay to the government most of it is going to war and so we're active participants yeah. in a lot of not just our wars but the wars that other countries fight that we fund yeah i think that says it all i think that war bad end it um but unfortunately, that me just saying war bad end it isn't enough. We have to do more. We have to get mobilized. Um, and the first step that you should take if you're listening to this before the conference takes place is to go get a ticket for No War 2021, World Beyond War's upcoming conference. If you're listening to this after the fact, um, 
get involved in a world beyond wars work and rehumanizes work um, and your local peace organizations. All right. Good night, everyone, or good morning and good afternoon. Good sign off, everyone. Peace and solidarity. Thank you.